0: This is Polyoptics,
1: shining a light on the theater of politics. Now from Washington, DC, here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today. And it's only on POTUS, politics of the United States for the people of the United States. Hello. I'm Josh King sitting in the A chair today for Adam Belmaro's Off This Week. This week, communicating on the global stage and the producers, part two. As the leaders from around the world descend on Manhattan for the UN General Assembly, with all eyes trained on the Security Council interplay between Israel, the Palestinian Authority, and the United States, we're joined by Don Bear, Debonair Communicator Extraordinaire. Don was Director of Strategic Planning and Communications at the Clinton White House at the helm for some of the president's most historic moments, and is now Worldwide Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer of Burson Marsteller, one of the largest, if not the largest, public relations firms on the planet. We'll talk geopolitics and domestic politics, Democrats and Republicans, jobs and the Buffett rule, all against the backdrop of the showdown at the U.N., then... If you missed our show last week, hurry up and download it on iTunes or polyoptics.com. Scott Sforza and Steve Rubinowitz, two exemplary producers of Political Stagecraft, joined a roundtable with Adam Belmar and me that went into double overtime. We'll air part two of The Producers later in the broadcast. But first, we welcome to Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124, a longtime friend, a former boss, and a master of polyoptics, Don Bear. Welcome, sir.
2: Hello, Josh. I like that debonair. I taught you well. That's great.
1: You look great, man. Great choice man. of words. <laughs> you look great. You don't look a day older than when
2: we parted ways in the late 90s in the Clinton White House. You know, that hurts me, because when we parted ways in the late 90s of the Clinton White House, I was so exhausted that I can't possibly have looked my best. But I'll take it. That's those, fine.
1: Those years of, beaten down, of being beaten down by Evelyn Lieberman have long wore off, <laughs> oh, I assure oh, you, oh, Don. Oh, God. I'm shattered. <laughs> <laughs> So, Don, you're an old speechwriter, one of the best, and one of the trickiest of all subjects is the delicate balance of U.S. interests and the simmering tensions in the Middle East. So let's break down the polyoptics of what went down in New York this week. First, Governor Rick Perry of Texas, the Republican frontrunner, according to some polls, comes into town speaking to a group of conservative Jewish leaders, and he rips right into the president.
2: We would not be here today at this very precipice of such a dangerous move if the Obama policy in the Middle East wasn't naive and arrogant, misguided, and dangerous. Don. Smart politics? A bold stroke. No question about it. Something we haven't seen much of before. You know, the old adage was that politics stops at the water's edge and that you, you don't criticize a president when he's traveling abroad if you're from the opposition party. Certainly, if you're coming to the U.N. General Assembly Week in New York, and there's as tense a moment as there has been in New York this week with regard to the Middle East, um, it's a it's bold, if not uh, unprecedented and unheard of, for a uh, candidate running for the Republican nomination or the nomination of the opposing party to come into town and take the president on directly, and to take him on, of course, with one of the traditionally core Democratic constituencies, which is the Jewish vote. Um uh, so smart politics, I don't know. I mean, Rick Perry has clearly decided he's going all in. Uh, you know, to use a Texas term, he's, he's, he's going all in on the poker table, and he's going to push the president just as hard as possible, which is part of what his strong appeal is to the Republican base, to Tea Party uh, members, and to basically people who have begun to lose faith with the president who are kind of more independent voters. They want to see someone tough. He's not presenting himself as the reasonable grown-up in the room he's presenting himself as the tough talker it is it, a way to consolidate that position it's hard to imagine uh, a, a stronger way to do it he
1: has stayed faithful to the rhetorical previews we got in July and August when the rumblings of his arrival to the race were coming and you can you can describe for our listeners what the white boy syndrome is when <laughs> suddenly you become a A party's leading front runner and the old hands, the wizened masters of politics come in and calm the candidate down and focus his message.
2: But that hasn't been his style. Yeah, that doesn't seem to be what Rick Perry is going to be about. I mean, he's also, let's not forget, he's not just positioning himself against Barack Obama. He's positioning himself mostly against Mitt Romney right now. That's his first race. He's got to beat Romney out. For the Republican nomination, and he also, by the way, needed to sideline some people who were coming from the right, like Michelle Bachmann, which he has pretty effectively done. So I mean, he accomplished. she? (laughs) Yeah, you remember her? You know, he pretty much did that by entering the race. But he obviously has to kind of keep uh, pushing her back, and others who uh, Rand Paul and others who, or or Ron Paul, who gets certain amount of vote. So he's got to keep them down. While he's also coming at Romney, and the sort of rap on Romney would be he's too timid, he's too bland, he really doesn't stand for anything strong with with regard to the Republican Party. And Perry's trying to basically sort of uh, create a pincher movement, you know, this move into all of that. But, um, and again, the elites, the sort of gray beards of both parties would sort of say, boy, this seems intemperate, this seems like the wrong direction. I'm not so sure that's true from a political standpoint right now.
1: And, and from an optics standpoint, I think friends of ours and we both worked in the Clinton White House uh, the the more centrists and even and the progressives and the liberals would look at his statements as as codified in his book and then what he said subsequently on the stump about Social Security and then this week about Israel and other things that he said about Ben Bernanke on the campaign trail and they said boy he is way too untame to be president of the United States but as you and I were both working for Bill Clinton And looking backward ten years at Ronald Reagan there is a a stature a presence a charisma about this governor from Texas that may be able to convince enough voters in the key states against the the candidate that Romney represents
2: even though I look as young as you do Josh (laughs) I'm a good bit older than you and I can remember and I've been thinking about it a lot in the last few weeks 1979 1980 a, a strong Democrat at that point Myself and and thinking there's no way Ronald Reagan can possibly be elected president. He's too conservative. The country's not like that. He's coming from this exotic world of California. They do all these strange things out there, but that's not really mainstream. He's not smart enough. He's an actor. All of those things. We were so wrong. We were. And and um, I think the conventional wisdom uh, that is mostly heard uh, in Washington, New York, sort of the media elite, all of that around the country. Um. Uh, basically doesn't get it and doesn't get the level of rage but I think rage is maybe an overused word it's the level of frustration and disappointment that perhaps is out there across the country and that maybe will attach to Rick Perry and I'm not here uh, as they say I'm not pitching or catching for Rick, right, Rick Perry right. I'm just trying to tell you what I think could be going on out there
1: and, and just in terms of a presence sometimes pollsters call it likability other people look at this guy on the screen or in or in pictures, and they say, there's an ah shucks quality about him. And how do you think that is resonating
2: or not, or- Well, again, so far, resonating fine within the Republican Party, right? And within what we know about uh, uh, the Republican primary voters or people who say they will be Republicans, no one's voted yet right? And you can remember the Howard Dean campaign of 2004. Right about this time, Howard Dean was beginning to rack it all up and sort of essentially elbow outside everyone. By the time you got to the vote in Iowa, not so much. Um, so we'll see. Um, Likability, I think, matters. I actually think that the voters are smarter than that and that it doesn't all come down to, a quote, popularity contest. I think they're going to be making some very elaborate calculations in the course of the next 18 months, uh, 15 months who's smart enough to do this, who is savvy enough to do this. This is a very tough job. We now know that. Um, Who has some experience to get the job done? And I think it's all going to come down, given what we've faced in the last several years and the disappointment at the performance of the president thus far. I think what people want is someone who can come to this and say, look, we've got a job to do. It's a tough job. We all know it, but it's time we got the job done. I'm a guy with background experience, and if you will, now here's a word that is a bad juxtaposition when it comes to Rick Perry, the chutzpah, to get it done. and That's kind of what he was showing up here in New York this week, was the chutzpah to sort of stand up and say, look, here's the real deal when it comes to the Middle East. Only
1: a North Carolina Jew can say chutzpah just like you can. That's yeah, great. Don, let's stay in the context of this week, because it provides metaphor for, for everything else we're talking about in the campaign. And if you roll back the tape earlier this year, May 19th, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu comes to Washington and has a meeting with President Obama, like hundreds of meetings, we call them bilaterals between heads of state and government that we've seen uh, over the years. But this one is different because the pool comes into the Oval Office, the cameras start to roll, and Netanyahu starts to speak and speak and speak. And as an observer of these Oval Office uh, moments, I'd never seen the visitors speak quite that much before. And so I was looking forward with a lot of anticipation to what would happen at the UN on the east side of Manhattan this week when Obama and Netanyahu met again. And let's hear a little bit about what the Prime Minister said.
3: Standing your ground, taking this position of principle, which is also I think the, the right position to achieve peace, I think this is a, this is a badge of honor. And I want to thank you for wearing that badge of honor and also to express my hope that others will follow your example, Mr. President.
1: So in addition to his flag pin, does the president have to
2: wear this badge of honor every day out in public? So, So, you know, part of diplomacy and especially the speech and sort of language of diplomacy is saying what you mean without using the words. Uh, in this case, he used the words, and uh, that was a very, if you will, undiplomatic moment on Netanyahu's part because what he was doing was locking Obama in uh, in a way that probably makes Obama feel very uncomfortable. Uh, but, you know, he, that, that, that was the moment, and he wrapped him into it. Um, I don't think it's a badge of honor that Obama, from his own political standpoint, and maybe even from the standpoint of how he's able to tack now back to the Palestinians and work with them, uh, that he's necessarily looking for. But he owns it now. He's going to wear it. And, of course, Netanyahu has – let's not forget, he's not really just sending a signal to the American electorate and American voters. More importantly, he's sending a signal back to his own voters. Uh, in Israel, because they're looking for him to be strong and savvy enough to be able to work the president.
1: You're listening to Don Baer, uh, worldwide vice chairman uh, and chief strategic officer of Burson Marsteller. I'm with Josh King, and this is Sirius XM Channel 124 Polyoptics. And Don, Netanyahu is no stranger to this stage. In our time, we worked with and hosted the White House Yitzhak Rabin, Shimon Perez Ehud Barak, uh, Ariel Sharon. And our presidents have had shifting relationships with these Israeli prime ministers over the years. Can you reflect on some of the experiences you had with President Clinton and how
2: he viewed Israel and its leadership? Yeah, I I traveled, as I think you did, Josh, with President Clinton to his first visit as president to the Middle East. Uh, It was a historic thing. I still have a a t-shirt that I wear that we all did up that was uh, uh, seven countries in six days, or six days in seven countries. It was a whirlwind. Uh, it was historic. We were there to uh, sign a... Only dr-
1: time I've been to Damascus.
2: Yeah. The, the, well, the only time that you and I and two other Jewish speechwriters were taken into the presidential palace, uh, where they were actually a little nervous about us in yeah. there, if you can remember. I, I mean, they were the, our people were worried about taking us in there. Uh, <laughs> we... Um, Uh, And that was a historic trip, and the president spoke uh, to both the um, uh, Jordanian parliament one night, and then the very next night to the Israeli parliament, to the Knesset. Uh, Historic moment, and part of what was historic about it was he delivered the exact same message to both parliaments, to both governments, uh, with the idea that he was going to be the healer and the repairer of that breach. Um, Incredible moment, so many memories. You know, I was... I watched President Clinton, I was maybe a hundred feet away from him when he got the news that Yitzhak Rabin had been assassinated. Actually that first that he had been shot and then he had died uh, and you, we all remember that there was a very close bond between those two leaders and it was a very sad moment for everyone in the White House but certainly for the President and you can remember what it was like to put that trip together when uh, people went over for the funeral service and the memorials for Rabin. Uh, chaos
1: in the streets of Jerusalem.
2: Yeah, uh, and Shalom Haver, Yeah, right? Peace friend, peace friend, which became a bumper sticker in Israel. President Clinton, as you know, much beloved in, in in Israel and he had a strong feeling of affection and love for Israel and for the Israeli people. Um, and uh... that was always amazing to me actually how well he was received when we would go over there because he was seen as a peacemaker and as somebody who would uh, stand with them no matter what and really believed in israel deeply
1: the rhetorical phrase "repairer of the breach how did that come about
2: that uh... appears in the president's second inaugural address from january of nineteen ninety seven uh... robert schuler the uh... christian minister had been in touch with the president they were in regular conversation as he was with many people of faith from different faiths uh... And Schuler had passed it on to him. It's a, it's a quote from Isaiah. Uh, President Clinton, as you remember, uh, was actually he's quite a biblical scholar. He, he's a real student of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, and he decided that he wanted us to try to weave that in uh, because he saw that as part of the role he needed to step up to and play in the second term of his presidency when the country then, as now, uh, was uh, riven with uh, divisiveness and, and with people who had very strong attitudes and opinions on all sides of political issues. He wanted to, not just himself, but th- wanted the leaders in Washington to join him in being repairers of the breach, and that that was a high calling, the highest calling perhaps that one could have. Didn't quite turn out that way, uh, given impeachment and some other issues, but I do believe he always thought that that was one of his central purposes in those years.
1: You're listening to Sirius XM channel 124, Polyoptics. We're with Don Baer, that's Josh King. Let's pivot now to sort of the third buoy of our discussion today, based on- Nice image, uh, based buoy, on, I like that. <laughs> thanks, Don based on events that are happening in, in New York this week. And we can, we can go back 20 years based on this one, too. Every year, the President of the United States is invited to speak before the General Assembly of the United Nations. And uh, it's, a, it's always a challenge for the speechwriters to get that delicate balance just right. And let's hear a little bit of what President Obama had to say this week in New York.
2: The men and women who built this institution understood that peace is more than just the absence of war. A lasting peace for nations and for individuals depends on a sense of justice and opportunity, of dignity and freedom. It depends on struggle and sacrifice, on compromise, and on a sense of common humanity.
1: Now, that from an audio radio perspective. Is about as good as I've heard the president in a long time and I was wondering if it's partly because maybe he took some cues and said you're speaking too fast mr. president you're not speaking with enough inflection you're not modulating your tone enough and you don't have enough pause or maybe it's just the simultaneous interpretation at the UN what's your view we we all know as does Barack Obama that he is a
2: sterling speechwriter but he's a good speech giver Um, I I think there are times, for sure, when we have seen him be an excellent speech giver. Um, The first one that we all remember was from the Democratic Convention in Boston in 2004, where he gave the speech, essentially, that branded him, where he he, he talked about there's not a red America, there's not a blue America, there's one United States of America. He was, again, that repairer of the breach. He was meant to be that unity uh, political figure. Um, uh, So I think he can give very good speeches and sometimes very inspirational speeches. You know, tonally, sometimes you get moving too fast, too slow. Sometimes the words don't uh, quite click. Um, I think more importantly, to be honest with you, I try to listen to what the words say uh... i think in that case that's a pretty cliche oriented speech uh... from what that at least that clip i don't hear him saying anything particularly strong or bold or uh, trying to really move the debate and, uh, forward very much uh... at this juncture uh... and he does seem to have lost some of that edge i, I it it occurred to me in his first year in office um... You know, we used to talk about the great communicator being Reagan, and there was a lot of feeling that Bill Clinton, which I believe he did, had a really special gift with regard to all of that. Obama struck me as being the great explainer, by which I meant this. He had the ability to kind of rise above each side in a debate and explain one to the other quite well, but, and then still be able to tilt things towards the direction of the argument he wanted it to go without making it seem as though he was diminishing one side or the other. He did that in the Cairo speech, by the way, which I thought was an excellent speech at the time. And that's where I called him the great explainer, and some people picked up on that. He's not doing much explaining anymore, <laughs> you know, to quote Ricky Ricardo. And and that maybe is part of the problem. Now, I know his, his uh, core supporters, his base supporters really want him to start pounding on the Republicans. I don't think that's really what the country wants. His base may need that for a while, but I think the country wants him to show us, how are we going to get past these problems that we're in and keep moving forward as a nation?
1: Well, that's interesting. I mean, when when people uh, asked me how much of Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing reflected reality, uh, I would always say it was pretty damn accurate, because it captured the, the idea that I, I was... there were countless meetings that I had in your office Don in which the only way out of a situation was was my office in the West Wing your office in the West Wing in the basement of the West Wing uh, basement uh, next in the old barber shop as I recall Uh, next to the old over and uh, but the only way out of the thicket for us to be able to go home at night uh, to see our friends to get through the next day was gallows humor and as I reflect in the last week A big political story on uh, Bill Daley and the challenges that he's having as chief of staff. Uh, The publication this week of Ron Susskind's book, Confidence Men, talking about uh, the atmosphere that women might have faced at the White House, uh, promulgated by a quote, in context or out of, by Anita Dunn, another White House communications director. And then we have a quote this week from uh, Dan Pfeiffer, the director of communications, Uh, who said this about this? uh, where the president is going to come down uh, politically in the time to come. He said, The popular narrative is that we sought compromise in a quixotic quest for independent votes. We sought out compromise because a failure to get funding of the government last spring and then an extension of the debt ceiling in August would have been very bad for the economy and for the country. We were in a position of legislative compromise by necessity. That phase is behind us. Is that kind of posture anything that a Don Baer communications
2: director would have said? So, first off, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the West Wing, the TV show, because people always ask me, well, how was it different working in the real West Wing from the TV show, the West Wing? And what I always say, which is apropos to this week, is, boy, they all seem so much nicer to one another than I remember it being, (laughs) you know? I mean, I I used to say it shouldn't have surprised me there was a lot of politics in politics, but there you go. But... um, uh, look I think uh, no I, I, I would not have been the right communications director for that kind of sharper edged uh, partisan message and um, I don't think it's the right direction for the president uh, politically um, that's my view I don't think class warfare is the right direction I don't think picking partisan fights is the right direction I um, People want him to be strong. I want want him to be strong for the whole of America, right? Not for one point of view or another, and clearly he has to move things forward, but they're um, they have their own uh, strategy at this point, and we'll see how well it works.
1: There was nothing more cherished uh, in my career than the time that I was able to work in the White House, and I think you feel the same way. Sure. But it was hard. We, you know, the the knives were out in many occasions, uh, and but we we persevered, and we had a lot of things that we we put in, a lot of notches that we put in our in our trick in our gun because of it. But if you think about the things that have been out this week, do you think the obama west wing is um reeling or or frustrated or is it more gallows humor look all we got
2: to do is win this thing next november uh, you know i used to say that the job of working in the white house was a job i looked forward to looking back on um <laughs> and uh, because it it's uh exhausting and it take a lot out of you i think one of the things that's interesting to me about the suskind book and the revelations that are in that disclosures that are, seem to be in that book is why it took so long for the media to get to it you know in the clinton white house it took them all of about fifteen seconds to start picking apart at the divisions and differences that people had and by the way i think too many people in the early clinton white house talked too much to the press and sort of let it all out this white house has been more disciplined yeah, it was by a and large. for bob
1: woodward and yeah other and people. So this
2: white house has tended to be more disciplined though clearly in the course of the last year when suskind was doing his research people were talking uh... but it is interesting that uh... a largely um uh... cooperative press corps media corps uh... has not really reported on a lot of these things up until now so here comes this book writer who's an independent doesn't represent one of the major media organizations and he's gotten to a lot of the story Sure. I mean, they want to just win this thing um, uh, desperately. Um, they're probably very concerned about it at this juncture, although there's a strong degree of confidence uh, among the central players in this political apparatus and and, and in and the president himself about their ability, um, as the president says, I guess, I've got this. You know, I can take this. I'll, I'll take the ball, you trust me to carry it, and we can win this thing. Um, I think from a political strategic standpoint right now, given how bad the economy is, given that many of the things they've tried to do have not really moved forward, uh, given some lack of confidence, it seems, in the president, based on the polls right now anyway, you know, that I think they're counting on the fact that that, uh, they'll be better than the alternative, which I think is a line that David Axelrod used this very week. Um, That may be. What worries me about that is two things. First off, the country needs a sense of vision and direction, not just... Uh, to say, look, as bad as you may think we are, those other guys are worse. And secondly, I do worry about uh, a negative campaign, not just from that side, but from both sides in the course of the next year, that will be unrelenting, and what that will do to the country's sense of confidence about itself, because these things have an impact on the national psychology, and Lord knows we don't need more of that right now.
1: Don, as we leave you here uh, on Sirius XM channel 124. Um, Looking forward to next summer. When you and I worked in the White House together, it was 1996, and we were planning uh, the reelection campaign against then Senator Bob Dole, and working with the president's advisor Dick Morris and his pollster Mark Penn, uh, you came up with the uh, the tagline "Building a Bridge to the 21st Century," and that was supported by underlying poll-tested nuggets like protecting America's values, building America's communities, and things like that. Is the Obama campaign headed
2: toward an ability to find the right theme for 2012? Oh, I'm sure they have all the same tools that we had, and they're very smart people, so I hope they will. I think you, um, first off, let me just say, I didn't come up with that phrase about the, building the bridge between the first thing by myself. That was a group effort, no, and, you, you know. No, you deserve all the credit, Right, Tom. right. No, that was very much a group effort, and I can even go back and tell you who the original people were on that. But look, y- you can have all of that research, but you have to be able to look at that research and think about it in the context of what your actual ideals and beliefs are. And it's got to fit. And if you approach the political situation from one particular ideology or the other, uh, it's going to skew how you see these things and what you, what you believe. So, you know, we were about conveying a sense of optimism, a sense that the country could move forward into the new century, that you had a president in place who was doing the job he was elected to do, and therefore it was a good idea to rehire him for another four years. Um, different people approach these political calculations in different ways. That's how I would run for reelection, but, you know, no one's asking me right now.
1: Don, you've had a hand in writing so many State of the Union addresses for President Bill Clinton. The one that Barack Obama faces in January is bound to be a a one that attracts a huge amount of attention, based on how he frames up 2012 and whether he should be rehired. In effect, I hope you'll come back again and preview that speech for us. Oh, I would love to do that. Thanks, Don. Thank you, Josh. We are back on PolyOptics, Sirius XM Satellite Radio, Channel 124, POTUS. Now, if you were not with us last week, you missed a hell of a conversation. Steve Rubinowitz and Scott Sforza, directors of production of Presidents Clinton and Bush, respectively. Steve was the guy who preceded me, and Scott was the guy who preceded Adam Belmar in President Bush's administration. Now, our conversation with with Scott and Steve... We called him rabbi, went over time. I think we talked for about an hour and a half, and we didn't want to deny our listeners the ability to listen to the second half of that conversation. It's truly worth your while to listen to the first half if you were not with us last week. You can do that one of two ways. You can go to iTunes on Polyoptics and download epi- the episode with Steve Rabinowitz and Scott Forza. That's probably the easiest way. You can always also go to our website, polyoptics.com and stream it right there on the screen. In any case, it is a great conversation about political stagecraft and statecraft. But now here comes part two of our conversation with the producers. We pick it up talking to Steve Rubinowitz. Can you tell us (laughs) about the Dallas Cowboys, Steve? (laughs) How do you know these
3: things, Josh? Come on. Um, so, you know, it's, a, uh, it's a, a more often than perennial event at the White House that the championship sports team of name the sport, collegiate or professional, is brought to the White House to meet the president. So in 93, the Dallas Cowboys had won the Super Bowl and they eventually came to the White House to, uh, to meet the president and to see the White House. And again, because there was nobody to tell me not to, (laughs) I got the crazy idea, now I appreciate the stupid idea, to turn the East Room into a football field. (laughs) and working with I wish I was making this who up. Who was the usher at the time? Who allowed this? <laughs> Gary, Gary. Walker. Gary. You know, I don't know. I, I don't know if it was early in the time and he you thought, you know, the rest of us. it's funny cuz he's not a meek guy, you know, he's not a no. a, a reserved guy, but um, or maybe he saw me getting into trouble and he thought that was funny or I don't know. I mean, nobody ever told me no. And so working with the NFL who have, you know, these amazing special events departments, we covered the floor of the East Room in AstroTurf, we brought in goalposts, we brought in the NFL experience and I thought it looked totally cool and I did not understand, I didn't appreciate until after the event that the Dallas Cowboys were not coming to the White House to see the East Room turned into a football field. They were coming to see the grandeur of the East Room. I wanted it to be a football field. And, uh, and, I, and it really changed my view of things after that, that, that even though we could do seemingly anything we wanted, it just wasn't always
0: right. I, <laughs> I've definitely had those moments just, too, but no. But I think that it's 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 really great, though. It is a you know when you get to have that uh, freedom to do the different things that you want to do, and uh, and we've also had those events where the unexpected things happen. Give where, us an example. Well, we had uh, well one of this this really involves personnel more than production elements, so to speak, because this was like one of our first events, and I thought, well, okay, it, it was uh, uh, for the Disabilities Act, and we had. Um, And so part of this event was I thought, you know, we had never had a president uh, introduce anybody from a podium that was ADA compliant so that Mm. somebody in a wheelchair could actually introduce the president from a presidential podium. So we built one customized uh, to ADA standards so that someone in the wheelchair could actually introduce... Um, Was that like introduce
4: putting a, r- a, a ramp onto it? Or, or? raised
0: and lowered? Or? We, uh, no, we built it at uh, so that uh, the president, even when he spoke, would sit and speak from behind that podium so that he could mm-hmm. be on the same level as they were because so many times... When the president goes up and talks to people that have wheel that are in wheelchairs on stage, with he's looking down. He's looking the, down. Yeah. This way, he could be on their same level, and they could Entry. also introduce. So, we we decided to, to to go ahead and do it, and um and it ended up getting very positive um, feedback. But we also had our public liaison office who said that they wanted um, one of uh, the folks there. There, there was a, a a little girl who was known for. Saying the Pledge of Allegiance uh, before each event, but she would be, but she had a disability and she was very sweet. But they said that she would uh, sometimes panic if she couldn't see her parents. And mm-hmm. so this was a, you know, we didn't want her to be in an awkward position. Uh, but what had happened was, um, in, in fact, during, in the middle of the um, uh, Pledge of Allegiance, she did panic and um, she took off running toward the American flag, which was on the staging, as we all know, that the the staging that's used in the East Room is about twelve inches tall. So I was afraid. She'd fall off the. That's what I was afraid of. But what had happened was she she ran toward the flag. Uh, just the 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 force of her running whipped the flag upward. She grabbed onto the pole, and the flag draped itself around her, so that all you saw were two legs sticking out up from the bottom of the flag. And so, <laughs> so I was trying to think what was going to happen next after the Pledge of Allegiance. Her mother continued the Pledge of Allegiance, as did the president. And I was trying to think what was going to come after the end of the Pledge of Allegiance. And in which case, it ended. And then um, uh, the president turned to her and he said, hey, he goes, how about giving me a hug? And she came running into his arms. And that was uh. the moment. <laughs> that, was the, that was the event. Well,
1: guys, I mean, we've been talking about uh, our successes and our failures, but I think what it comes down to is creative vision and the willingness to take risks. Sometimes they're going to pay off handsomely, and sometimes uh, they're going to fail miserably. And look, we've all been, we've all had experiences of, of that, and we can talk about more of them. Uh, but as as we Fast forward from uh, the 1990s and the 2010s into this new decade and look at this current campaign, both the President Obama and the White House and the crop of candidates who are vying for the Republican nomination, is the same level of creativity and fun and interest in producing a compelling visual there today, or are they sort of all flying blind?
3: Well, I, I haven't thought so, Josh. Um... You know, I uh, somehow my friend Chuck Todd convinced me to come on to his MSNBC show and dump on the Obama White House for their use of visuals, which I tried to do in as loving a way as I could, <laughs> insisting that I'm rooting for him and he's my guy and I'm with him on all the issues and I just want to be able to see the issues and not just read about them. Uh, I think they've gotten so much better. I think that they spent two years doing event after event after event that was um, – what i call you know four white guys and a woman uh you know east room events they would mix up the locations of the events because they'd still all look the, they'd still all look the same and then the teleprompter obsession kind of bummed me out and everything was either the town hall meeting rally which don't get me wrong i love it you know i some days when i'm kidding myself i like to fantasize that jeff Eller and i uh remade the whole town hall meeting look which by the way i saw Mitt romney do very very well uh this week in uh in Phoenix Um, but they didn't do visual events now the last couple of weeks as the president's been rolling out economic stuff and job stuff they've started to been be doing factory tours and the networks have been using this video over and over and over again and so I think they're finally getting it but boy I had two and a half years of real frustration with the Obama folks and and the Republicans I mostly see outdoor rallies in front of a banner and I see town hall meetings in a room, you know, with the, with half the audience stacked up on bleachers behind them. Which, again, don't get me wrong. I think that's exactly how to do a town hall meeting. I just think you got to have something else in your uh, in your portfolio besides town hall meetings. Mm. How about you, Scott?
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it, you have to have that variety. You have to break it up. And I think, um, yeah, I was actually I was surprised too um, after uh, such a successful campaign and incredible images. I thought, wow, this is really going to be mind-blowing to see what they're going to do when they come to the White House, when President Obama gets to the White House. But uh, I I agree. I was uh, kind of surprised that many of the events, you really didn't know where he was or what the message was. They sort of all looked pretty much the same. And I think that, um, especially with a charismatic president that can connect with people, it was a missed opportunity, I thought. So, and I think you're yeah, right. If uh, now uh, that they're getting out there and starting to, to uh, take advantage of actually putting him in an environment where you can really sense what the message is and, you know, get a real feel of pulse for what's going on, I think that is, that's huge. And I think also for the, the Republican events, I agree. I mean, I think that they really, uh, there's not really, doesn't seem to be any real deep thought into some of these events just yet. And I don't know if it's uh, because of, uh, uh, any sorts of economic issues that they can't afford it just yet or they're saving their their money to do bigger events uh, later but I do think if you're going to spend your money anyway you might as well shake it up a little bit and do something different
3: yeah they have they have money uh, but uh, other than building crowds and uh, and sites I, I I haven't seen it I haven't seen it being used. You are listening to Polyoptics
4: here on POTUS Politics of the United States, channel one twenty four. We are speaking with Scott Sforza, uh, former presidential production chief in the George W. Bush White House with experience in the George H.W. Bush White House, a former network television producer here in Washington, D.C., and Steve Rabinowitz, the father of all production chiefs, uh, hailing from the Clinton administration, uh, colleague of my, uh, my esteemed co-host Josh King, who joins us from New York, Josh, this conversation is uh, is is of particular interest to all of us. So I want to make sure that our audience appreciates um, some of these insights. We've spoken about this before—the sort of homogeneity of the uh, of the the Obama uh, event, uh, blue drape, American flags—and um, we've seen the president being uh, taken to task for overuse of this teleprompter. Um, not no signage, a, on no signage on the signing tables. No signage on the signing tables. And then Steve uh, brings up what's going on in the last couple weeks. The president has been uh, out there working on selling the American Jobs Act. And so they've got this really big blue banner that says American Jobs Act once and a uh, White House uh not, not the presidential seal, but sort of the White House seal, you know, with mm. the north portico of the White House on it, above it, and a little uh, uh, White House and an American flag motif underneath it. Um, they're woefully under-utilizing the talents and the abilities that they have to differentiate their events, in my opinion. And it's because they don't have a long view of a presidency, they don't appreciate what eight years in office or even a full four years will look like or should look like they've been so busy thinking and doing what they mean to be doing that they they just don't have the context that I think we uh, do having already served and looked at it but in in, in, in another sense they're really innovating on the visual uh, front with with digital video and the way they're communicating with video online and Scott and and Steve I'm wondering what your appreciation of that has been uh you know that that's a really a new frontier that they're pushing out there scott what did you do you follow it a lot if you kept an eye on it are you a fan
0: yeah i think they're doing a great job with the new media stuff i mean when when you go online uh to take a look at what they have I, i i really appreciate what they've done with um having their own crews shoot various things and having uh uh, video content that's exclusive to the White House uh, website. I think that's all good things. It drives people to the site. It's very interesting. People like it. The photographs are really amazing. I mean, sometimes I find it hard to sort of navigate through it, to be honest, because I can't, you know, but I think the content itself is is really good. And I do look at it pretty frequently. And I and I just, the, the, the thing that always, uh, when I see it, I always, the first thing I think of is why can't they apply this to where you know that's to, exactly to, my to their take. Rabbi. I mean, I mean yeah. but 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 they the, do the have s- it. The smartness, right? Yeah. Exactly yeah. because it's so good. Uh, it really is good, and I really like it. And I think they've got the right idea, and I like the idea—the video message instead of what was classically known as the radio message of the week. It's now finally evolved to where it should be, which is the video. And you always see that play after Meet the Press, but it's also obviously online. But it's, and you also see them tweet, and you also see them using. Um, you know for the first time ever uh as you know you know when the when the uh, when the press secretary uh when when um he would tweet uh breaking news i mean this was all something that had never been done yeah at, josh w- loves White this House. and i thought that was really interesting how they did that and and it's it's their way and it's it's good though i mean they're controlling the message they're, they're they're doing they're using the tools that they have now to their advantage and i think that's always a good thing
3: yeah i couldn't i couldn't agree more scott they um and and they're not doing it passively; they're they're pushing it out, mm-hmm. right? It's not just a great website, exactly. and a rich and robust website, but they're 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 pushing it out. And uh, and I just wish that some of the that some of the visuals were uh, were a little more compelling.
1: Yeah, a uh, guy like uh, sorry, go ahead, Steve.
3: No, you know, um, uh, what are, oh, by the way, by the way, a lot of this video is now coming from white house tv white house tv now has a much higher profile than it did in my day anyway i think in in all our day It's by the way it's been folded into waka as you guys probably know mm-hmm. and uh they have a re- the white house really fights for them fights for their position their stuff gets live streamed <laughs> routinely live streamed and then as as you say gets uh well scott over scott actually again. played a large role believe it or not in 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 bringing them up and then helping to
4: get resources ultimately that gave them the the infrastructure here in the Obama administration that allows them to do uh, so much of what they're doing. I I think back to Commander Doug...
0: uh, Oh, Bean. Doug Bean. Well, we brought in a lot of... um, We brought in... uh, The the most important thing with them was training because we brought in network cameramen uh, for for broadcast quality, and I think that was, uh, for us, it was a turning point because they had never before had they had that type of training and I think that really helped out a lot. But I agree with you. I think it, it, that uh, it's also, for them, uh, a real morale boost for this White House yeah. to have said to them, look, you are a huge part of what we're going to be doing. And they've really taken it to a whole nother level. And I think it's uh, incredible what they've done. And I really admire what they've done.
3: Really, we all learned from from the master, who, of course, had a bigger job than we did, but from, uh, from Michael Deaver in the Reagan mm-hmm. White House, who, who really, really, you know, we think that the the each of the four of us have the vision thing, as someone once said. You know that you know we can just walk into a site or a room and see how it might look on TV or photographed to the next day's newspaper. But Deaver before us, uh, well, or although with, with maybe with you guys, um, really, really had that look. And even though my side, you know, tried to make light of it of how the Reagan presidency was a was a photo op presidency, there was no arguing that they weren't. You know, the great photo ops of all Mm. time Mm -hmm. and um and i'm looking forward to seeing that again (laughs) in 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 this white house we're starting to but i'd love i'd love to see and and one
0: of one of my special moments was uh, after i was about eight months in i had lunch with mike deaver and uh which which was pretty amazing yeah because he had just been rolling out i guess it was after he was just beginning to roll his book out or something but but I was just fascinated because, for the same reasons, I just wanted to hear everything. I, I didn't want to say anything, I just want to listen. And he was really a uh, remarkable. She's doing and, the White House mess? And, uh, no, no, uh, of all things, at Old Ebbett. <laughs> So, How about you, Josh? We Did were. you seek
1: out Deaver? I yeah. went over to the Edelman office, and I sat with Michael for quite some time, and we we stayed in close contact uh, through my years uh, working in the White House. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I uh, as I said, when Steve Rabinowitz joined us uh, here on SiriusXM, POTUS Channel 124, I learned a huge amount of st- from Steve, but I learned an enormous amount as well as a high school kid reading Time magazine and just looking at the images of Brooks Craft and Diana Walker who were shooting Mike Deaver in designed events of Reagan, and during that summer of 1992, when I sort of began c- to kind of create a, 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 a my own visual aesthetic, it was it was sort of partly Steve Rabinowitz and partly Michael Deaver.
4: We were joined uh, on this broadcast just a week ago by a young fellow named Arun Chathri. Uh Arun mm-hmm. is, uh was, up until very recently, Barack Obama's... Official White House videographer, and so when we talk about you know what they're pushing out, what they're doing, and what they're building upon, he was the singular uh, vision guy uh, for the Obama administration, and he he really took a lot of the conceptual stuff of migrating the radio of uh, message every mm-hmm. week into a, a video message, and then doing these behind the scenes things on White House events, and the stuff that we will never see. Or, or probably not in our lifetime, but the stuff that you know, because we've all lived it, the interstitial moments between events, the the, the, the walks uh, through the hallways and downstairs and manifested elevators and um, back and forth to the motorcade all and the holding rooms. He was shooting video of all of this. Mm. I think it, it represents a unique... Uh, historical record for the presidency that goes beyond the still image Um, and I'm really proud that it's 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 Mm -hmm. it that it exists Um, but like so much of the work that Scott Josh Steve you guys have done it lives in archives somewhere for people uh, to put back together and to really deconstruct at some time in the future Um, having said all of this the thing that I think makes the most impact on the American people uh, it really comes right back down to the visual and appreciating it and being uh, able to affect that visual comes down to where, for each presidency, they put a value on this. For Scott, uh, he was a commissioned officer in the uh, in the Bush White House and fought uh, and earned through his experience and his effectiveness, uh, you know, the capacity to be a deputy assistant to the president. When he handed uh, the job over to me, more or less, you know, I walked right into his office, his phone number, his shoes, his team, to try and continue to do the job, and did it as a deputy assistant. And that is just a uh, a huge title to hold. You all were doing very similar work you, you with nowhere near team? the title. <laughs> <Yeah>. That's right. <laughs> <I> <laughs> had Scott had a big in team. I <laughs> had an intern, too. <laughs> but let's talk about that for a second. You know, the value that a presidency puts on this kind of work and where you are in the hierarchy within the West Wing really bespeaks your ability to uh,
3: get the vision realized. Right, Steve? Well, it's, it's, it's funny. It's ironic because I had... A different position I am uh, uh, I I was not a, a, a deputy assistant I wasn't even a, I didn't even make special assistant um, and yet I had this ridiculous job you know I was mortified the day the Washington Post published my salary because it was you know like nothing uh, comparatively speaking uh, And nobody ever asked me about policy and yet I felt like I had this extraordinary influence on how the president Mm -hmm. was seen by the American people literally how he was seen on television and photographed in the next day's newspaper and that that had enormous impact never mind the Air Force One and the pomp of the White Mm -hmm. House and it was like an amazing amazing gig for you know a low-paid not even commissioned guy. It was uh it was an amazing experience for me.
4: What it really bespeaks is an appreciation uh and that will not necessarily transcend every administration. This administration doesn't have anything close to the formality around all of this that the Clinton administration did, let alone George W. Bush in the way that you let it, Scott.
0: Well, I think um, you know, And they definitely, definitely have the tools there. They just have to pick them up. I think, you know, because they obviously have creative people there. And I think that if they tapped into it, I mean, it would be huge for him. Um, You know, because you, you remember all those iconic moments on the campaign trail. All these crowds, the camera shots, everything. I mean, they just couldn't do anything wrong. And I think, so those people are out there. I just think, you know, if they could tap them and let them do like we did and just kind of leave them alone to do what they know how to do best, I think they would do great. I'm for sure
3: rooting for them. You know, uh, and, and I really do think it's getting better in the last couple of weeks. And like you say, Scott, and I appreciate you saying it, they clearly have the talent and the wisdom and the knowledge. And they have they have the guy, too. You know, look, I, 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 I love the living crap out of Bill Clinton, but you know, Barack Obama's no nobody. You know, he's mm-hmm. got it going on. and And, and he can do this. Uh, so I think it's coming. I, I sure hope so.
4: One of the things that uh, that I inherited uh, from Scott's Forza was an appreciation of the presidential retreat at Camp David. And I wondered if we could all spend a few minutes just talking about work that we had done there. Uh, you know, one of the things, and Scott, I want you to, to to talk about this, because in sort of this Boy Scout way of always being prepared, there was a necessity to realize that an emergency statement by the president could happen anywhere at any time not unlike uh... the night that that osama bin laden was captured uh, and killed uh... in about pakistan um, there's never any way to know when these events can occur and you were always prepared for this but always uh... studying the history of the presidential retreat or you know what might be possible to do at the mm-hmm. president's ranch in texas all of these things are are different for every administration but talk for a second about your philosophy and how you utilized uh, these other spaces outside the White House
0: well I think it um, after 9-11 it gave us a new sense of urgency to sort of like figure out what we had and how to improve upon it or or, or use it if we hadn't been using it already and uh, one of the problems with Camp David as everyone knows nobody could really transmit live from camp david it was always off limits and in fact they would take the um the press pool and they would stay at the bottom of the hill outside the the camp david uh grounds uh, outside the gates and a uh satellite truck could be set up down in that area that was a considerable distance from the actual uh camp access where within within the gates where the president was and so what we decided um needed to be done immediately was to really uh come up with several locations within camp that we could install fiber optic uh, capability so that um, the networks could be able to, to broadcast live from various points within the camp. And that way uh, it would also maintain the security of Camp David while at the same time providing the immediacy that people expect these days for um, with breaking news and so forth. So uh, we spent uh, quite a bit of time uh, on the installation project of getting fiber optics into Camp David in various locations. You uh, want me
4: to complain to you for a second? Three fiber lines was not enough.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I yeah, we had to fight for it those. It felt good at the time, but we needed yeah. more. Well, we had to fight for those, but that's uh, but you know, that's a thing. That's what's great because now they can just add on to it. There's the ability to do that, and um, you know, and of course the first uh location that was approved to to go with live was uh, for fiber optics was the uh, helicopter hangar where we all know they would stage. Uh, Marine One, and we would just pull that out so that we could do an event inside if there was an inclement weather situation, but we'd also be able to extend that line out to the arrival area for Marine One when there was a, a, a state arrival there. If there was uh, some head of state that was coming to stay with the president, we could cover it live now. So that was something that was really helpful for us. And then uh, obviously at the ranch, which is very remote, as everybody knows, <laughs> in Crawford, Texas, we really uh, relied upon having uh fiber optics out there that was critical so that uh, the networks could be up and running in in seconds Josh
4: did you and Steve work out at camp uh, camp David a great deal well, I, in my time, I mean,
1: the president, President Clinton, used Camp David a whole lot less, I think, than President Bush did. And maybe President Obama is somewhere in between. But President Clinton loved to stay in Washington, D.C. on the weekends, and so uh, I, I had many experiences where he was. Uh, we did events uh, on the fly in the in the briefing room or on the South Lawn, right right outside the diplomatic reception room. And the president often played golf in area uh, on air, in area courses on Saturdays and Sundays in Washington, D.C. So if there was news that had to get out, uh, we could easily do a statement right outside uh, the limo and have the tape brought back to the Bureau. Nothing like the technological advancement that Scott has made. But uh, we didn't do a whole lot at Camp David. Right, Rabbi?
3: Yeah, same, same by me. I was just jealous listening to this guy. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, I, I never got to do an event, if you will, a media event at Camp David. You know, we released White House photos But uh, I I never got to do an event. I'm jealous. But but like Josh said, you know, lots of stuff on the fly, even stuff on vacation, you know, lots of quickie stuff that, you know, we pulled out of our butts and uh, still tried to make look, you know, look nice. Uh, But not at Camp David.
1: One thing that really departed with President Clinton was the notion that you could quickly just talk to the pool. I mean, President Bush, I think, to probably rightly for his personality and from a production standpoint, would do very little of guys gather around, put your microphones in my face and I'm going to make a statement and what matters is what I'm saying, not how I look. And so President Clinton did a often many events that didn't look very good, but he got his his news out, but we didn't pause to create a stick mic or a malt box and think through the backdrop, although we we did that a lot. But it seems like President Bush and President Obama after him, most of their statements to camera are through a planned microphone.
4: This conversation uh, represents, I think, uh, a a great historical record, if not just anecdotally, about what experiences are trying to support the Commander-in-Chief in in communicating with the world and the American people. We haven't spent a terrible lot of time uh, talking about the political implications and the political uh, angles involved in this, uh, but there are many, and uh, all of us here with perhaps the exception of me, have been involved in in presidential campaign politics and uh, staging conventions, party conventions uh, for the president and uh, inaugurals. And there's so much more to talk about. But we sort of come to the end of our time today. And I hope uh, that Scott Sforza and Steve Rabinowitz will will be uh, regulars. uh, And we hope to have you back because it's been just an incredible conversation today. I want to thank you both for joining us on Polyoptics.
0: Anytime, madam. Yeah. Thank you for having us.